Good evening. Great worship. Uh, this Good Friday service is, of course, special all the time. And as I was thinking about what could I talk about, someone said, well, it's always the same thing. You, you go through the crucifixion of Christ and things like that, and that's true. But it's an evangelistic message. It's important. If there's anyone here that does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, if there's anyone listening, this message is for you. It's about hope and the only person, the hope man, Jesus Christ. So we've all have been probably in a child's room, a child's nursery before. And on the wall, you will always see somewhere Noah's Ark with all of the animals hanging out over the side of the ark. And many churches, as you know, we don't have it one yet, but one day we will. We'll have a nursery with the ark like that. And maybe I'm reminded of Veggie Tales when they were building an ark. And they even get in on the act with their depiction of the ark and what it looked like. And we, because we are believers, we tend to gravitate towards that because of the biblical account. And when we open up our Old Testament, we find it there in Genesis chapter 6. And we learn about this flood and a man called Noah. And this big box or ark that he built, and it floated around in, in the water. And people say, oh, yeah, that's in the Bible. And they're correct. But it's not only in the Bible. Matter of fact, You find this in lots of places. Perhaps one of the most famous is the Sumerian flood tablet. In the Mesopotamia region, you had the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and they were codifying the story that has come down truly to the Bible. Maybe you took some civilization class in high school or college. Have you ever heard of the Gilgamesh epic, which speaks quite a bit about the flood story. But it's not just the Mesopotamian and the Sumerians. The Hindus and the Chinese have their own stories. The Maotop tribe, they wrote a very extensive story regarding the flood. And you can lay Genesis chapter 6 through 9 right next to that and find a thousand similarities between that story of the flood And the Chinese story, you have in India, of course, stories of being saved in a boat from a huge flood. Even the Native American Indians have the story of the flood. In the Jeboat tribe, you have the stories that resemble the flood, the account also in Genesis chapter 6. But you know, as believers, that shouldn't be surprising when we understand the claim of the Bible and the historicity of that event, it makes sense that everyone that descended from Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, then no matter where you are on the planet and the confusion, remember, of the language because they wouldn't disperse as the Lord had told them, but there will always be stories of their telling of the big flood that took place. Matter of fact, anthropologists have chronicled over 200 stories of the flood that has come down through oral tradition. 
and got codified in some kind of writings in all these tribes and cultures around the world. And you will find if you lay these side by side, once again, Genesis chapter 6, that 95% of them speak of this great flood. Not as some regional flood, like some say, but it truly was a global flood. These are big deals as they talk about these stories of the worldwide global flood. 88% tell of a favored person or favored family that was chosen and the hero of the story, and they go about saving the entire world. 70% describes a large boat as the vehicle of that salvation through this terrible flood. 67% of the 200 stories that the anthropologists have chronicled report of, a save, of the saving of animals. So that's part of the story. 66% speak of people being warned all throughout the earth at this time. Not many, as we know, responding, but many were forewarned that this flood was coming. And 60% also explained the cause of this as sin, as man wickedness. And there's the rub. There's the problem. Here you have these stories, even in cultures handed down through the time, in various places around the globe, describing this as something as the result of sin. I've just given you the descending percentage of people that describe that, but still well over 50% are going to talk about the cause of the flood being sin on the earth. Well, if you open up your Bible and read about it, it's not just tucked away in some footnote of the Bible. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, and I'll be reading from the ESV. Let me let you guys know. I was a stickler for the New King James, but I found myself going back and forth, and I began to like the ESV a little more, or either the 2020 a series of the NIV. So most of the time now I'll be reading from the ESV. But Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 tells us, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The account begins with this sin problem. People's heart, God says, are wicked, not a little bit, but the Lord says continually. And even in this culture, people are always chasing after sin. And then two verses later, it says, God made a decision. I'm done. I'm through. And he says in Genesis chapter 6, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. I've had enough. I'm holy. I'm a just God. And God says, I'm going to blot them out. So when you really think about it, I understand that this is a floating zoo of some sorts, but it doesn't seem like a happy scene. If the whole point of the biblical account is that people are sinners and a just God is going to respond by blotting them out of the face of the earth, well, new parents putting up murals on the wall and making comforters for their kids, they usually portray this picture 
and it, and it gets tucked away in our minds. It's a happy picture. But back in the day, when biblical artists wanted to depict the flood, they didn't depict the floating zoo. A guy by the name of Gustave Doré, when he was asked to draw the flood, he didn't draw anything like this. He drew a picture of what God was doing and that was blotting out sinful people from the planet. People grasping to the last bit of firma terra to hang on to before they were blotted out and destroyed because of sin in their lives. So I understand if, if you were going to paint the boat from a biblical perspective and a biblical context, that even as you reflect what 66% of the culture stories were regarding this global flood talked about, it was a time of dread, a time of God's anger on the earth. Now, you can go to babies or us all you want to and buy those comforters and those borders, and that's just fine. But if you wanted something like this, the picture of Doré, and depending on what kind of kid you're wanting to raise, that's probably not going to work for you. So I get it and I understand. So when you think about the ark, I think about Ken Ham, and he, he has made now a replica of that ark in the tri-state area of northern Kentucky, just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. They tell me it's a huge and gigantic art. I haven't been there yet. I've heard many people have in the fellowship, and i got to go one day. But it's a dimension of the original ark in Genesis chapter 6, which is a really, really huge ark, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. The ark was the exact maximum proportion you needed for a floatable box. And even for the stability, the 6 to 1 ratio And how it's designed in the Bible is perfect for navigating the stormy seas of some big ocean. I believe what Ken is trying to show in part, if you were to take the cubit space in the ark, you'd have about 500, I think, and 22 rail cars box. And that's for storage to put all of the animals, seven of every kind of the clean animals, two pair of the unclean animals on the ark. You've got tons of space for provision, and of course, you've got much room for people, and we know they didn't need that much room. Only eight came aboard. I don't know if you knew this, but in Answers in Genesis, they received a lot of pushback while they were building this ark. An atheist group called the Free Thinkers, the Tri-State Free Thinkers, collected enough money, and they put up a couple of billboards. And their whole point of this was to mock this ark and more accurately to shame people for even believing in this flood account. And, you know, they've really done a much better job than a lot of Christians in reading their Bible. And they only see these free-thinking atheists. They say, hey, wait a minute. Isn't this God getting really mad at the world of sinners and then wiping them all out from the face of the earth? So they put up this billboard, and it says genocide, huge billboard. Not to mention, as they were reading, 
they begin to think about Noah, his wife, his sons, and their wives. And when the planet is wiped out and they settle in, babies are being made. And so they have a sign, and this is what they call it, the genocide and incest part. That's what they're fighting against. They're saying, come on, Christians, just read your Bibles. Look at what this is. This is God wiping out a generation of people. This is a bunch of grandkids of Noah's having to marry each other. And then they had a little small subtext celebrating. This is what it says, celebrating 2,000 years of myths. Now, they don't chronicleize the Bible accurately. We know it's been longer than 2,000 years. But the premise, the main point of what they're saying, they understand this is about people who are being judged. And they're being judged by God because their thoughts and their hearts and their intentions and their words and their actions are sinful. I'm okay with it. If they want to shame me by telling me as a Christian, hey, you believe in this ark story? And don't you know God is killing people off? I'll tell you, not only do I believe that, but that's really condensed theology that we teach our kids from the time they were little. Perhaps you've learned this verse, Romans 6, 23. The beginning says, for the wages of sin is death. We teach our kids this to remind them that the problem with the holy God is when he looks at sinful people, he cannot sit there like some indulgent granddad and just roll his eyes and say, boys will be boys. It's no big deal. No, he has to respond to wickedness of man and in a way that is just. And the word death As we know, it's not just physical death, but of course, the just punishment of separation from God is eternal death. People don't like that. They would actually like me and you to be shamed by the fact that God will kill people in his creation. And yet, that's what happened in Genesis chapter 3, the latter part of verse 3. As Eve is speaking to the serpent, which she should have never done, and where Adam is, I do not know. I'll have to ask him one day. But she says, God has said, speaking to the serpent, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So there she adds on to the scriptures. And the curse came along in that same chapter. And they died spiritually, as we know first, and eventually they died physically. Well, it's not much different today, you guys, when it comes to God looking at the planet. Matter of fact, Jesus makes a parallel. It's recorded twice in the gospel where he makes the parallel between the days of Noah and the days that will be at the end of this current age in which we live the last days, the period of the time between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Jesus said, It will be just like it was in the days of Noah. And, you know, as I think about that statement and as I understand the context of what he has said, 
He discussed that twice in the gospel. I realized what he was saying is God is still a God who sees sin and as a problem because he's holy and just, and he still has to do something about it. It has not changed. The wages of sin for God has to be death. There has to be a just punishment. And I realize when I look at the news today, I must look, it must look like the same things that probably was going on in the days of Noah, if not worse. Because if you're going to talk about sin, it's all over the place and it's getting worse. Have you noticed that? It's everywhere. And by the way, you don't have to look at the news to hear about the corruption in the world. All you need to do is look in your own heart. All we have to do is take the Bible, the mirror of the word, and we begin to see lust and pride and greed and envy and laziness and anger, and that I've got a problem in my heart, and you've got a problem in yours, and your neighbor does, and your coworker does, and your family members do also. And just like it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. There's going to be a kind of perversiveness in society, even an applauding in society of sin, a championing of sin in society that's all around us now, where people are giving a hearty approval to one another for these things and are, are no longer ashamed to do them. There was a time they used to do stuff in, in the closet and they thought, well, I know it's wrong, I know it's bad, and I really don't want people to find out. But now I think as Jeremiah the prophet says, when they do these things, they don't even blush when they do them anymore. And we understand once again that the wages of sin is death. And when we think about the flood story, it's the story of God as he always does. He keeps his promise and responding to his nature and being someone who in a measured sense breaks out in his justice against sin. But thank God that's not all of the verse. As a matter of fact, we teach our kids the whole verse, Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's a sweet verse. That second half of the verse is why we shouldn't be completely ashamed when we go into a nursery or an infant room and you see that floating ark with all of the animals' faces and they're smiling and everything, that's okay because there's a silver lining, if you will, to this story. And the point is that there was an ark. You see, it doesn't surprise me at all that a just God would respond to sinful people in judgment with the flood but I tell you, what surprises me is that God would give opportunity for someone to build an ark and to climb into that ark and to be saved from that punishment. And I know we've read the account time and time again, and there's Noah. And in the account he's presented 
as a good guy in Genesis 6. And he is in some ways, but all of you, all you have to do is read the entire chapter. And maybe we ought to give him a little break. Maybe we ought to give the atheists an opportunity to read it since they're so good at finding what they call bad spots in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But we know what was going on with Noah. Noah gets in the ark. Noah's a sinner too. And then when they come out of that ark, his two daughters, they end up having kids by Noah. And so the question is, why did, didn't God destroy Noah? He was a sinner just like the rest. Why didn't he do that? Because Noah found grace, the scripture says, in the eyes of the Lord. Noah heard God make his promise, and Noah, just like us, believed in that promise. And as we know, if we believe truly in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then belief takes on action. And that's what Noah did. You're right. He was not perfect. But he believed on the promises of the Lord, and he and his family feared God, and they feared him enough to get into that ark. That's amazing grace to me. I see the, the justice of God, but I also see his grace. And the reasonable thing is that a just God will punish sinful people. I understand that. But the amazing thing is that God would be gracious enough to save penitent sinners who take him at his word. That's why when we look at the ark, you shouldn't see this just simply of God's judgment. That's what usually unbelievers see. But for the believers, we see the grace of God. I mean, you can call it genocide if you like. But God is just, and he carries out the wages of sin. But that's not the highlight of the story. What we as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ celebrate, we celebrate the story not because of the justice of God, but because of the grace of God. Because that box we all know represents salvation. It represents Jesus Christ, the ark was built, and the New Testament highlights that fact, that God didn't do this without a warning. He warned everyone. Hebrews eleven seven at the beginning of that verse says this, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructing an ark for the, and here's the key, saving of his household. Once again, it's a saving by grace. Because as we read about Noah and his children, once again, they're sinners. But they're willing out of fear and just respect, a kind of serious sobriety about God's promise of judgment to come. 1 Peter 3.20 says this, God's patient waited in the days of Noah. Right there, at that very moment, God could have punished everyone that sinned. 
But in his patience, as God is very patient, he waited. And it says, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Once again, that's God's grace. I'll let you build a box so that you can be brought safely through the time of judgment. Eight people, that's not much. All that Noah was able to talk into coming on that ark. And if it was me and I was Noah and had seven, three sons and they were married, I probably wouldn't have did much talking. I would have probably been dragging them at least on the ark. But they made it. Second Peter gives us a hint that shows Noah was doing more than building an ark. Second Peter 2.5 says this, but preserve Noah, a herald of righteousness, herald a Caruso. He was a preacher of righteousness. So he wasn't only building the ark, he was proclaiming that a flood was coming and they were scoffing and they were laughing and they were too busy doing other things to even care. But he was preaching. He says, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. But most people scoff and laugh today. And they do the same thing as we tell them the wages of sin is death. All you have to do is watch the news. You watch the TV shows. People scoff at God all of the time. They, they respond to all of his graces. I don't need it. I'm going to do what I want to when I want to any time I want to. And they'll say, that's not the way it's going to be. God is not going to bring destruction to this earth again. God is a loving God. But they think he's a loving God that sits there in his rocking chair and once again says, hey, boys will be boys. He might get a little embarrassed by the things that they do, but that's okay. He's not going to send destruction to this earth. And Peter says, scoffers will come in the last days. That's the day that Jesus talked about. That will be just like the days of Noah. Second Peter chapter 3, beginning of verse 4, tells us this. They ask the question, where is the promise of his coming? You guys keep talking about getting ready, getting saved, having your sins forgiven. When is God going to show up and bring this destruction that you've guys been harping about for 2,000 years. Verse 5 tells us, for they deliberately overlook this fact. It's like it's on purpose they're forgetting the fact. And it says that by the word of God, that was all it took to start the rain that day. That's all it took to make the floods gate open In the heavens, it had never rained before. We didn't even know the word for rain because the the, uh, moisture would come up from beneath the ground and water everything. And Noah, Noah is preaching. A flood is coming. And all of a sudden, the upheaval begins to happen. The world that then existed was deluge with water and perish. They forget that. And by the same word, you need to know from a New Testament perspective, the earth that now is exists, the scripture tells us, 
is stored up for. And remember that God, after the flood had came and gone, he gives Noah the rainbow. It will never, the earth will never again be destroyed by flood. And scripture tells us something else is going to happen, though. It won't be water, but fire. God says he's going to destroy everything again. He says being kept, God is keeping it by his patience, this fire, until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Once again, people, I've heard people say, Pastor Victor, you're too hard. I can't come to your church because you're always harping on sin and sin and sin, but I think I sprinkle grace in there every once in a while. I think I sprinkle grace in there all the time, but I have to teach what the Word says. This is the context we're looking at. Once again, the wages of sin is death, you guys. And to make that comparison that just like God flooded the world, one day he will destroy this current world also. This time, not with water, but with fire. Some people, they may say that's genocide. You can say that all you want because the problem is people don't like this phrase. The wages of sin is death. It's something that stirs them, that rubs them the wrong way because they don't want to be responsible for their sin. But the wages of sin is death, and that's the fundamental building theological block in the New Testament. Let me read the rest of the verse in context, Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39, where Jesus is reading. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving giving in marriage. They were going about their everyday business. They didn't think this flood thing was ever going to happen. Noah would be preaching, but that was no big deal. They weren't interested in that. We've got weddings to plan. We've got parties to attend. We've got vacations to take. We've got all of these things to do. And they forgot about until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were just going about their everyday business as every day is the same and will always be the same. And then it says, and they were unaware. And we need to put that in quotes. They really weren't unaware because Noah was preaching all of this time. It just didn't sink into their hearts. He says, until the flood came and swept them all away, so will it be the coming of the Son of Man. Why isn't not only Restore Pack this evening, 12 Stone I'm sure has a lot, but I don't believe they're packed. Hall County and Gwinnett County and Forsyth County, they should be packed on Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, but they're too busy. They have better things to do. They're planning, 
as if tomorrow is promised to them. And I'll worry about that when I see it happen. Good Friday is important. While the world is approving of each other's sin, while the world is flaunting sin in the face of God and saying, it's okay, he's not going to judge us with fire. But he is. And even if you don't see that, who knows what this evening or tomorrow holds and you die in your sins. Really, if you understand it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, what does that mean? He comes to die on the cross. This is the father, according to Isaiah 53, crushing his son giving his son as a sacrifice, you say this is negative, and I understand that. But you can't appreciate, and I try to say it from this platform all the time, you can't appreciate the good news if you don't understand the bad news. You can go up to people and tell them, hey, give your life to Jesus. He'll make your life better. He'll give you a good job. He'll clear your skin up. He'll do any of those things. And they'll say, that's okay. I'm fine. I'm good. I'm okay. You need more than that. You need to tell them that this earth will be destroyed by a fervent heat. You need to tell them no man knows the day or the hour when the Lord will call us. We need to tell them. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. We need to see Good Friday as an open door. And Jesus Christ, we know, is that door. In John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. You need to tell them there's a pathway for you to be saved in this world. And you, you can enter into the place where the wrath of God, the fire of his wrath came down on that propitiation, on the mercy seat. And now we can enter in to a holy place. Hebrew calls it in 1019. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, and the only way we can have confidence is that we're born again, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus He had to die on that cross so that you could take a seat in a place where the wrath of God had already been. And he opened it up for us. It says, through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Oh, we know the curtain was torn as he had been crucified and gave up the ghost, and the curtain in the temple was torn, but that was only symbolic of what was happening, now we can enter in and have access to the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ. We're covered. We're protected by the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no more enmity between the believer and the unbeliever. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. He's the only way. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only door. God had to treat Jesus as he would have treated us for our sins. 
for our sins. Think of the worst sinner that you've ever read about, you've ever thought about, the worst child molester, the worst rapist, the the littlest white lie had to take the death of the body of that sinless lamb, Jesus Christ. He was pinned to the tree for us. And now we can sit in that position of grace. We have a place on that ark that allows us to have peace with God. We don't, we need to tell unbelievers this, that they need to give their life to the Lord because the wrath of God is coming. The fire of his wrath is coming. Not a, 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 a wrath of water this time, but there's going to be the wrath in the last days of fire. Once again, they didn't know what raining was. They never experienced that. And they used to sing this old Baptist hymnal, it won't be water but fire this time. Not just a kindling of fire on the earth, fire from heaven, just like the rain. Everything is coming down to destroy this earth. So they can put up their billboards and they can mock our Savior. But remember, eight souls were only saved then. And we like to talk about the New Testament. The New Testament is more gentle. It's more easier than the Old Testament. But I don't see that. In my opinion, especially in this case, it's even worse. People talk about flowers and kittens and butterflies uh, in the New Testament. But God says the judgment this time will be fire. We should celebrate Good Friday because of the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The worship team can come up. Are y'all? Oh, excuse me then. I will close. (laughs) All I want to say Everyone in this world, hustling and bustling and doing all types of things that they think is important. And I know things are important. But one thing is the most important, your soul. That's why Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago, at this point in time, was in the grave not for any sins of his own, but our sins. When everyone was sad, when everyone was disappointed, when everyone had no hope, we have hope. We have an eternal hope. We have a hope no matter what happens on this planet, if we know Jesus Christ, if we truly know him as our personal Lord and Savior, we're going to be okay. And we can only say that, and we can only have confidence in that because of the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And once again, when he resurrects, he's not only Lord and Savior now, he's king. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. And for us believers, he makes intercession for us all the time. And I don't know about you guys, but I need that. That's why 
I boast in Good Friday. That's why I boast in Resurrection Sunday, because every believer has that hope of eternity in their hearts. And we can be sure it's an anchor that goes behind the veil and it holds, it's secure. So whether you have loved ones, whether you have friends that, know, that don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, stay on your knees. Continue to pray because I wouldn't wish hell on my worst enemy. No one wants to go there. Let's pray. Father, 2,000 years ago today, you knew the outcome. You knew when the only unique son says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You knew that was coming. And yet, you wept. The spirit wept. The son had been weeping. And he did something for us that we will be learning about for eternity. What kind of love is that? There's no greater love that a man will lay his life down for his friend. Lord, For everyone who knows you, continue to strengthen us. Help us to keep following you until we truly have that kind of love. Lord, you don't wink at sin. You never have and you never will. You are a holy God. So teach us, teach me, teach your children to walk circumspectly. Because we have to understand that your grace, your amazing grace, your marvelous grace, we have that, but it's covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. So let us remember that, Lord. Lord, we love you. Lord, I pray for everyone here that we would have a closer walk with you, Lord, and that we would bask in your resurrection, in your death and your burial and your resurrection, and your grace that you would choose sinners like us. May we walk up right before you by your grace. May we love by your grace the way you've called us to do. And may we continue to seek you until you call us home. And I ask all of these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, to the Father God.